We'll read verses 1 through 4 together as we continue on in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We are this morning in the second of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, but we'll read in context verses 1 through 4 together. Please follow along as I read, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, now we come before your word to study it, to expound it to receive it preached to us. We pray, Father, that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand the Scriptures, to believe them, to trust them, uh, to live in the light of them. We pray, Father, that what we have not, you would give us, what we know not, you would teach us, what we are not, you would make us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. We often refer to the opening of the Sermon on the Mount as the Beatitudes, Uh, They are uh, short statements of truth, notable as much for their extraordinary simplicity and economy of words as for their depth and profundity of thought and meaning. Uh, I think taken together, uh, they have no other peer anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, They describe for us and commend to us virtues, attitudes, character traits, dispositions of the heart that are to mark the people of God. They are the qualities that should distinguish citizens of the kingdom of heaven who, if you're in Christ, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. These are the qualities then that should distinguish us as the Lord's people. Last week we considered what it means to be poor in spirit there in verse 3. Now we consider the second of these Beatitudes in Matthew 5 verse 4 which says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. I noted this last week, but isn't it striking uh, that here now is Jesus giving us His kingdom manifesto. This is His first public teaching that we have in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of the kingdom, and He begins by commending the poor in spirit and those who mourn. And next week, God willing, we'll consider uh, verse 5 where He commends the meek. Is that what you would have expected? Is this what anyone would expect when the king would finally come and announce his kingdom? What would the Jews of his day have expected that his kingdom would be like? Here's the son of David. Here's the great king to inaugurate a new creation, to inaugurate a new kingdom. We read these opening verses. We're sort of knocked off balance, aren't we? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. How could this possibly be? What could that possibly mean? As someone has said tongue-in-cheek that you could almost translate this verse in verse 4, happy are the unhappy. Of course, that's not the idea, but still, the blessedness of mourning doesn't exactly fit in with our modern notions of triumphant Christian living, does it? We feel intuitively that Christians shouldn't mourn. Christians shouldn't go around with long faces and with teary eyes. Christians should be, shouldn't they, perpetually happy. They should be at all times glad. They should be cheerful. They should always have a smile on their face. For some of us, we hear, blessed are those who mourn, and it immediately smacks of something unfitting and unbecoming of Christians. Maybe you've heard the term happy clappy. Do you know how that term originated? It was originated to describe Christians of a certain variety. Christians are so happy clappy. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you know Christians like this. There are some Christians who think and act as though, you know, if you're sad as a Christian or if you mourn as a believer, that's somehow evidence that something is amiss in your Christian life. As a Christian, you're supposed to be happy and cheerful and ebullient at all times. And the solution for you then, if you're one given to mourning, is to believe more on the promises of God and then really start living as a Christian. My friend, that perspective is incandescently wrong and can only reflect the most abject biblical illiteracy and ignorance. 
It simply cannot be sustained alongside an honest consideration of the Scripture. And yet, in an evangelical climate that is marked by a kind of glib triumphalism and an appalling superficiality, a sort of casual and carefree Christianity that is light and bouncy and utterly lacking in any substance and sober-mindedness, we hear, blessed are those who mourn, and it sounds dissident with our view of what the Christian life ought to be. But my friend, if we only knew our Bibles better, this wouldn't strike us as out of place at all. Even a cursory reading of the Scriptures would reveal immediately that God's people throughout the ages have always been a people who mourn. You could consider the lives of the patriarchs in Genesis. In many places, we see them mourning and weeping. You could just read the Psalms. How many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament? Uh, How many of the Psalms give voice to those who mourn and weep and grieve? You could consider the life of David. I've been reading very slowly through 1 and 2 Samuel, my own private devotions, and it has impressed me how often we see uh, the great King David uh, weeping, uh, clothes torn asunder, mourning over the events of the nation, his own sin and the sins of the world around him. You could consider Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You could look at the prophets in general and how much God's people are called to mourn over their own sins and over the sins of the nation and over the fallenness and brokenness of the world around them. Ecclesiastes 3 famously tells us there is a time for weeping. There is a season for mourning. Mourning has been a common trait among God's people throughout the ages. You see it also when you turn to the New Testament. Uh, Just consider how many of the people Jesus encountered in His ministry, how many of them weep in His presence. And we saw last week as an illustration of one who was poor in spirit, uh, the sinful woman who was forgiven in Luke 7, and how she wept so much over her sin and her sense of indebtedness to the Lord that her tears were enough to actually wipe His feet. Uh, She wept tears. She, with her hair, wiped the feet and cleansed the feet of the Lord Jesus. You could think of Mary and Martha, and how they wept over the death of their brother, many others who mourn and weep before Jesus and cry out to Him. And we might think of the Apostle Paul, who described himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In Romans 7, he laments his own fallen condition, a wretched man that I am, he says. He talks in numbers of places about how his ministry among the churches was accompanied with many tears. He tells the Corinthian Christians, they ought to mourn with godly sorrow. Uh, James And James chapter 4 verse 9 instructs the Christians, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. But friends, we can simply consider the Lord Himself. Do you know, not once in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John do we see any record of Jesus laughing. Not once do we see Him laugh. And yet, how many times do we see him mourn? Uh, He mourns over unbelief and over sin. He mourns with Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. He mourns as he observes the fallenness and the sinfulness and the unbelief of men. He mourns over the city of Jerusalem. He was sorrowful, we read later on, unto death, it says. Uh, In Isaiah 53, he's described as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I say all of this to say, if mourning has no place in your theology and in your view of the Christian life, you need to reconsider the Scriptures. Mourning has marked the Lord's people throughout the ages, and it marked even the Lord Himself. Now, this morning that we're talking about, I'd like to expound this subject from this beatitude in Matthew 5, verse 4, and try to understand what Jesus is talking about as He says, blessed are those who mourn, as He commends those who mourn. Uh, But before we speak positively about what our Lord means by this statement, I'd like us to simply consider a couple of things we are not to gather from this statement, two things this does not mean, two ideas here that this is not. First of all, uh, this statement has nothing to do with whether or not you're an especially emotionally fragile or emotionally vulnerable person, uh, or if you're a fantastic crier. Uh, you could think of the commercial that comes on every now and again. There is the really pathetic-looking puppy dog with the watery eyes, and then Sarah McLaughlin's voice is piped in, and I know for some of you, you're just a puddle of goo on the floor by the end of the commercial, right? 
Well, that's probably more uh, sentimentalism at work than it is the kind of godly sorrow that the Scriptures talk about. Uh, we're not talking about someone who just cries really easily at the drop of a hat. And I would even go as far as to say, though I think we are to envision in this kind of mourning the actual shedding of tears, an actual brokenness in our inward selves that leads to a kind of weeping or crying, I wouldn't necessarily attach any particular outward physical expression to this kind of mourning. People grieve in different ways. Some people are given over to crying a little more easily than others. You could have some person who is making a big demonstration of tears, and yet they may not be mourning or grieving in the same way as someone who appears a little more stone-faced. Uh, don't think, well, the more tears I have, well, the more I'm truly following Matthew 5 and verse 4. And more than that, I wouldn't necessarily attach a particular physical expression uh, to how this must go if we're to mourn or write as this text calls us to. A second error to avoid, a second, this beatitude is not encouraging a posture of depression. In fact, this refers not to depression at all. This is about the man or woman who has a sober-minded view of reality. This is a person who sees the world clearly, and because of many of the things he or she sees in the world, they appropriately mourn, they have a proper reaction to the things that they see. Uh, so, so, you know, having a sad response to sad things that you see in the world is not depression. If you, if you weep or sorrow over sad things, uh, that's not necessarily a symptom that you're a depressed person. The trouble with the depressed person is that they're sorrowful over everything. Uh, things that typically would bring joy don't. You become sad not only at sad things, but also those things that ought to bring to you some measure of gladness and joy. But to be sad over sad things doesn't mean you're depressed. That just means you're human. Well, that's just a typical human response the sad things that we see. So as we consider what it means to mourn, don't think this is encouraging you to be forever dour or depressed or melancholic. That's not the idea, I think, that we have in this passage. But now we want to speak positively about it. There are two main headings I have this morning as we seek to open up this passage. First, we want to consider why do the Lord's people mourn? And secondly, how does the Lord comfort them? Why do the Lord's people mourn? Secondly, how do the Lord's people comfort them? We'll spend almost all of our time on the first point. And consider the last one briefly. Why do the Lord's people mourn? Point number one. There are many ways we might answer this question biblically. I want to suggest three reasons why God's people mourn. Three reasons. They mourn, number one, because they understand themselves. They understand themselves. Number two, because they understand the world. And number three, because they understand the time. They understand themselves. They understand the world, they understand the time. They mourn, first of all, because they understand themselves, and this is the most important point this morning. The Christian, fundamentally, is not deluded about him or herself. At the most fundamental level, he's not self-deceived. He's not blind to the evils of his own heart. He has had his heart regenerated. And his eyes open to see God as he is in all his holiness and perfection, and to see himself as he is in all his wickedness, and all his guilt, and all his sin and shame. And more than that, he has been enabled to see Jesus, who is a Savior for sinners, and who redeems those who are under sin's penalty and power. What I mean when I say the Christian is not deluded about himself is not that we can never be self-deceived as Christians. I think we can. But what I mean when I say that is that on a fundamental level, the Christian sees himself as he is. He sees himself as a sinner. He sees himself in reality. And he has, listen, a Christian response to what he sees. The Christian experiences sorrow and grief and mourning over his sin. He wants to please his Lord. He wants to honor his king, to live for his Savior, and yet he finds sin in himself, and he mourns over it, and he repents of it in humility and contrition again and again. So I'm saying that the mourning envisioned here in Matthew 5-4, blessed are those who mourn, in the first instance, is a kind of mourning with respect to sin, particularly our own sin. Blessed are those who mourn over the sin that they see in themselves. The Christian experiences this kind of mourning over sin uh, when he first comes to Christ, when he's first enabled 
to see himself for all that he is as a sinner. And it is this mourning over sin, this sorrow over sin that leads to his salvation. It leads him to the gospel. It leads him to Christ. I wonder, my brother, sister, this morning, do you remember when you first began to see yourself as a sinner? When the Lord first, as it were, exposed you to yourself, showed you who you really are, showed you as one who had violated God's law and sinned against His Word and His will? And do you remember the sorrow over sin that you experienced when you realized who you were and all your wretchedness and your vileness and your sin, and how the Lord then led you in that posture to a place of genuine penitence and repentance and a kind of holy mourning and weeping and grief that led you to the cross to find redemption and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Friends, this is one of the reasons why we must insist on preaching sin in our presentation of the gospel. Uh, If people never sorrow over their sins, they'll never be brought to the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, One of the goals of the preaching of the Word of God and of the gospel is to show men and women who they are as sinners and to reveal to them, to preach to them, to disclose to them their need of a Savior. It's interesting, you'll sometimes see this in advertisements for uh, churches. Uh, there's a, you know, a really sort of hip video, and there's really tasteful music that's being played. And what's emphasized in the video is that we want you, the visitor, to feel as comfortable as you possibly can, as much at ease when you come into our gatherings. And so we have the coffee shop set up over here. You slide in, you get your coffee, and then someone's going to usher you over to where you drop your kids off, and then you can slide into worship. We hope that the songs will be pleasant to you and that you'll hear a talk that really is inspiring to you uh, in your life. And all the effort is to make sure you, the visitor, are at ease at all times and as comfortable as you can be. Well, I do think it's legitimate and valid to say we want people to feel welcome. Uh, We certainly do want our children's ministry to be well-organized and well-run so that people don't feel awkward or uncomfortable about leaving their kids off or wondering, is is this really well looked after? We want people to feel at ease about that kind of a thing. But is it our aim, when the preaching of the gospel is going to be undertaken, uh, that everyone would always feel at ease about what is said and perfectly comfortable with what is opened up? We do have a record in 1 Corinthians 14 of the desired response that we want our worship gatherings to have. Do you know what that desired response is? It speaks about when an outsider comes in among you, someone who's not a Christian, someone who doesn't know the Lord. What's the outcome to be desired in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and following? It is that he would have the secrets of his heart revealed, and he would feel called to account, and he would fall on his face in repentance, recognizing that God is among you. Friends, if we don't preach sin and seek to bring people that posture of holy mourning, how will they ever be saved? Wasn't it in that posture that God first met you and saved you when you finally saw yourself for who you were as a sinner and were brought to a place of crying out for God? Have mercy on me, Lord. I'm a guilty, vile, and helpless sinner. I need your grace. You're my only hope for salvation. And I just say to my friend here who's visiting this morning, maybe you wouldn't identify as a Christian. I I, I say this plainly and openly to you. I think if I could hope for anything to happen to you this morning, it is that you would come to have a realistic and sober-minded view of yourself as you are before a just and holy God. It would be a wonderful thing if maybe for the first time you were brought to see the truth about yourself. That despite all the lies that you hear that stroke your vanity and your pride and puff you up, that maybe for the first time you would hear something this morning, see something this morning, come to understand something this morning about who you really are before a just and holy God, that you are a sinner who has violated His law just like the rest of us, Uh, that you are one who has sinned against your Creator and your Maker and rebelled against Him. And, And you appreciate, I hope, whether you believe the words I'm saying or not, that our desire in you coming to that posture is not that you would just feel a sense of self-loathing. No, it's that you might experience the mercy and the grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to such people and to only such people He's pleased to give forgiveness and pardon. If you are to come to Him as a needy sinner, He will save you. He will receive you. If you see yourself and feel yourself to be a sinner, and if you come to Him in repentance and faith, 
the sure word of the gospel is that He will save you. The Christian experiences a kind of mourning over sin when he first comes to Christ. He's first enabled to see himself as a sinner. This is why they are blessed, those who mourn, because they're saved. They've seen their sin for what it is, and they've gone to Christ to find redemption and forgiveness. But of course, when a man is converted, it's not as though sin has gone entirely out of his life. When a woman is converted, she still has remaining sin. There is remaining corruption in all of us. Again, if you're not a Christian here this morning, what I would want you to know about all of us who are is that we are still sinners. We don't look at you with any sense of self-righteousness. We are still sinners every day, hoping in the same gospel that it is that I'm commending to you this morning. No, we're still sinners. So many things about ourselves that continue to disappoint us and disillusion us about ourselves and make us ashamed of ourselves. There are sins of omission and commission that still incite within the Christian breast sorrow and sadness. Our sins are a grief to us as God's children. Even as believers now, what I'm trying to say is we still mourn over sin, don't we? I hope you do, brother and sister. When you detect sin in yourself, I hope it still provokes grief and sorrow and mourning over everything that you are not and should be. And therefore, we are not cavalier in our attitude toward our sin. We're not indifferent or cold toward our many failings. We mourn over our sins as the Lord's people. That is the only proper Christian reaction to the sin that we still see in ourselves. Thus, the mourning I think we're to experience in this passage is not just a mourning over sin we experienced once in the past when we first came to Christ. But it is right as the Lord's people now that there is within us, even still, a kind of ongoing grief over our sins that we experience in the present. In the first instance, it's a kind of total desperation. I'm not forgiven. I'm under the wrath of God. I'm destined for hell if Jesus doesn't save me. And then when He does, we need never fear that kind of condemnation again over our sins. So when I talk about our grief and mourning over sin now in the present, I'm not encouraging anyone to doubt their salvation or to think that you're not truly forgiven. But still, as believers, we want to please our Lord, don't we? We want to be like Christ. And yet we look inward and we see things about ourselves that are so disappointing. I I want to be more and better than I am now. I don't want to struggle with these sins anymore. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed me for the day of redemption. I want to walk in righteousness, and so often I don't. There's a kind of mourning and grief we still experience over our sins. Brother, sister, do you ever experience that kind of grief? Have you ever, as a Christian, shed tears over your own sin? Other times in the context of gathered worship or in your own private devotions, when you experience this kind of grief over remaining sinfulness. Sorrow over sin is one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian. I'm grieved by my sin as God Himself is grieved. I abhor my sin, and I go to Jesus Christ with my sin in repentance and faith again and again and again. I do it constantly. I do it repeatedly because I am aware that I am still a sinner. Christians are not impressed with their inherent goodness and righteousness and worth. Rather, they are overwhelmed with their own sinfulness, and it leads them to godly grief and humble contrition leading to ongoing forgiveness and restoration. I mentioned the Apostle Paul earlier the start of this message. He spoke of this kind of holy mourning and godly grief that Christians ought to experience. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Paul himself, I think, models for us what this looks like. Paul is a Christian man, wrote Romans 7 about his own experience. And in that passage, he says, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. He felt that. There's nothing good within me. He sang about that in that beautiful song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. There's no good thing that dwells in me. He says, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's he doing? He's grieving over his own remaining sins. Do you ever feel that way? Wretched woman that I am, why do I still sin in these ways? I want to be free of my sin. Do you ever experience that kind of grief? A sense of holy self-abasement, a sense of sanctified sorrow 
of remaining sin. Uh, Psalm 51 would be another great example. There David, I think, is a regenerate man, is lamenting his own sinfulness. He talks about his bones being broken, and he wants God to give him a restoration of his Spirit's presence. He wants a restoration of forgiveness and pardon because he knows he has grieved God by his sin. I think the Christian attitude towards sin, one of godly grief and holy mourning, is expressed beautifully in one of the prayers written by Thomas Cranmer uh, in the Book of Common Prayer. We've been talking about Thomas Cranmer in our English church history class a couple Sunday nights a month. Thomas Cranmer was an English reformer, uh, probably the leading uh, English reformer in the 1500s. Uh, he wrote the Book of Common Prayer, which uh, is still used in Anglican churches today. Uh, he wrote the 39 Articles, the Confessional Standard of the Anglican Church. Listen. Listen to this prayer. We're actually going to say this prayer together corporately when we come to the communion table. This is from Cranmer's communion liturgy. As I read this, think about this. This is the attitude that this man of God commended to people as they come before the communion table. This is the attitude towards sin that he would call us to. The people of England were to pray these words, Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous to us, The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name. Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. I don't know how much that is the posture of the English people today, but there was a time in England where in every Church of England church, as they would come to the communion table, this was the attitude towards sin that was commended. Is it an attitude that you've ever experienced toward your own sin? Do you ever bewail your failings? Go into God's presence, just just grieve over the sin that is still present in your life? That's not an unchristian thing to do. It's a godly thing to do. To go to God and to say to Him, even as a believer, as His child, I say I agree with you about my sin, and I'm grieved over my sin, and I mourn over my sin. Lord, I pray again that You would forgive me of my sin, and that You'd help me as Your child and as Your servant to live in greater righteousness, to live in greater conformity to Your Word. To the Christian, his sin is a source of grief and sorrow to him, and he knows what godly mourning over his own sin is like. He knows that, it was in that very posture that God first saved him. And it is in that posture that he continually is met with fresh forgiveness and fresh life and fresh enablement. We looked last week at Isaiah 57, 15, about the high and holy God who dwells in eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a humble and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly to revive the heart of the contrite. If that is where God dwells, will those who assume such a posture of brokenness and humility, isn't that where we would want to be? It's there in my brokenness and contrition and Christian penitence that God comes to me, forgives me afresh, assures me of the truths of His gospel. Oh, I can always come to Christ as a needy sinner and find help and hope in Him. The Lord's people mourn in the first place because they understand themselves, they see themselves as sinners in need of grace. Now, secondly and more briefly, why do the Lord's people mourn? They mourn because they understand themselves, they see themselves as sinners. Number two, they mourn because they understand the world. The Christian man or woman, the Christ follower, the citizen of Christ's kingdom, sees the world for what it is. Christians understand that the world around them is fallen and broken. The whole creation is groaning, and we with it, Romans 8 
tells us, and for this reason, God's people mourn, because we live in a broken and fallen world. The Christians mourn because of all the effects of sin upon this world. They mourn over death. They mourn and grieve over cancer, over car crashes, over miscarriages, over divorce, over abandonment, over abuse and oppression, over war, over famine, and a thousand other evils. It was these types of things that made Jesus Himself mourn. You recognize this. In John 11, He did not weep at the tomb of Lazarus because He was afraid that somehow Lazarus was going to remain dead. He knew the outcome. He knew that Lazarus would rise. No, He wept in that passage over the grief and sorrow that marked this fallen world and that marked even His people. The Christian mourns because he knows this world is broken and is not how it was meant to be. But it's not just now the general fallenness and brokenness of the world that elicits the Christian's sorrow. The Christian grieves also over the wickedness of this world, not just the effects of the fall, but over sin itself in this world, over unbelief, over idolatry. Christians weep over immorality and perversion over greed, lust, murder, rage, envy, strife. All of these things produce grief in the heart of the righteous. There's a very interesting passage in 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, there it's said of Lot. He's described Lot in Genesis. He's described as righteous Lot. I don't typically think of Lot that way. The record we have of Lot is not very impressive. But he nonetheless apparently was to be regarded as a righteous man. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about how righteous Lot was tormenting his own soul as he observed the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah around him. As he saw the wickedness, the sort of decadent evil that prevailed in those cities, it was like his soul was tormented and he grieved over the sinfulness of those people. Do we grieve over the sinfulness of our world around us? All the lies that people are believing all the sexual perversion in the world, all the bloodthirstiness, all the abuse and oppression that we see, do we mourn over the state of our world? You see, the world's wickedness produces grief in the heart of the believer. God's name is not honored. His glory is not reverenced. His gospel not embraced. His love rejected. His law broken. And in compassion and mercy, Christian people weep for the world and they pray for the world. And with hearts of compassion and genuine love and pity, they mourn for the world. The mourning is not principally born of anger and rage and self-righteousness, but of sorrow and sadness, of compassion and love. God's people weep with Jesus over Jerusalem. Remember those accounts, Matthew 9, Matthew is at 23, 24, Jesus looks over the city and He weeps over them. He sees that they are disquieted and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He sees that the city is living in unbelief and has rejected its Messiah, and He weeps. Do we weep with Him over Manhattan, over Los Angeles, over Miami, uh, over London, over Paris, over Shanghai, over even our city? Winston-Salem. Christians mourn because they see the world as the Apostle Paul saw the world. They know that they live in the midst of what he called the present evil age, Galatians 1. The present distress, 1 Corinthians 7. A crooked and perverse generation, Philippians 2. And they weep for the world. The Christian is not like the unrighteous who glories in this world, who revels in wickedness and sin and who puts all of his hope and trust and pleasure in what this world has to offer. What is the motto of the unconverted man? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. No, for the Christian, he mourns over this world because he understands it. His eyes have been opened to see it for what it is. He sees its condition and he knows its end, and the world becomes to the Christian a source of sorrow and an object of his compassion. Christians mourn as they look upon a world so badly in need of redemption and renewal. Thirdly now, why do Christians mourn? They mourn, first of all, because they understand themselves. Secondly, because they understand the world. And now thirdly, they mourn because they understand the time. 
They understand the time. What do I mean by that? I'm taking my cue here from Luke's account of the Beatitudes. Luke records his account of the Beatitudes in Luke 6. You don't need to turn there. You can if you'd like. But there we have some of these same Beatitudes recast and repeated in Luke chapter 6. Listen to how Luke conveys this particular Beatitude in Luke 6, 21. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You see, he's introducing in a more obvious way, more evident way, the issue of time. Blessed are you who weep now. Uh, Something about the time conditions our weeping. And there's coming a laughter that is reserved for a different time. And he makes this even more plain in verse 25. He says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. We see this idea a little more clearly that our mourning as Christians is conditioned in part by our awareness of the time in which we live, our awareness of this life and the life to come, of where we are now and where we're headed. Christians are those who recognize that we live now in the season of mourning and that there is coming a season of laughter and endless joy. To paraphrase Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, we understand that it is in this life that we sow in mourning that we might reap with joy in the life to come. Christians recognize that this life, in a sense, is a veil of tears. Do you think of life that way? It's so easy as 21st century Americans to insulate ourselves from the sorrows and griefs and miseries of this world. But make no mistake, this life is, in a sense, a veil of tears. This life is marked by sorrows and trials and griefs. Mark our world. We could distract our minds from it for a time. We could so sedate ourselves by entertainment and drugs and addictions and relationships and all kinds of distractions. But this world is marked by so many sorrows. I mentioned in the equip class the uh, the movie The Princess Bride. There's a great little line in that movie that I repeat all the time to my wife, to my kids, to other people. Uh, The man in black, before he's revealed to be Wesley, spoiler alert, the man in black is Wesley. Uh, He says to Princess Buttercup, she says to him, you mock my pain. And he says, princess, life is pain. Anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. That's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, humorous kind of situation and line, but it's true. The Bible describes this life as a veil of tears. There are such sad stories reflected just in this room. Sorrows that we've experienced, trials we've gone through, oh, difficult things that have marked our lives. Isn't life hard? Isn't it in many ways sorrowful and sad? There is a kind of mourning and grief that is especially appropriate to the time, to where we are now. And for the Christian in particular, there are unique sorrows. We suffer in all kinds of ways as the Lord's people in particular. Christians are persecuted and opposed. There is more persecution happening now in our day of Christian people than at any time in the history of the church. That's not a speculation. That's a verifiable statistical fact. We endure the world's hostility. We fight against Satan and all his wiles and all his attacks. We struggle now, in the here and now, against spiritual powers in heavenly places. We fight our remaining corruption. We battle temptation. So many foes are arrayed against the Christian in the here and now as we live under the curse and the conducts of a world that is still lost and sin. These foes have the effect of producing woes and sorrows in us and for us. The Christian understands the time. Christian has a sober view of life. He sees it for what it is. The Christian knows and understands that these are the days, brethren, in which we sow in tears. But he also knows about the time to come. He understands where this is all headed. We sow now in tears, knowing that we will one day reap in joy in the life to come. They that weep now Jesus says in Luke 6, will laugh then. Those who sorrow now, mourn now, 
they'll experience impossible, unspeakable joy then. Friends, I view this more and more as my responsibility as the primary preacher, at least for the time being, of this congregation. I said that in a weird way. I'm not leaving or resigning. I don't know why I said it like that. (laughs) I mean, as long as you'll have me, I guess is what I mean to say. But I view it more and more as my responsibility to just remind us again and again of the shape of the Christian life. It's suffering and then glory. It's weeping and then joy. It's like, as Paul says in one place, like labor pangs. And then we hold the newborn baby. It's trial and hardship and difficulty now. And it's joy and comfort and gladness and bliss to come. So many Christians are exasperated in their Christian life because they're pursuing glory now. I need to have all my good things now. And the Christian life then and the Christian experience becomes incoherent to them and disillusioning to them. But friends, always remember this. We live in the time of suffering now, hardship now, glory to come. Paul says this plainly in Romans 8, I do not consider the sufferings of this present time. They're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Blessed are those who weep now, who sorrow now, for they will laugh then. Why do the Lord's people mourn? They mourn because they understand themselves. They mourn because they understand the world. They mourn because they understand the time. Point number two, and this will be brief. How are the Lord's people comforted? How are the Lord's people comforted? Up to this point, if you just left now, you would, you would miss something essential about the nature of Christian mourning and weeping. It is to be conditioned by a kind of hope that is ours, a kind of comfort that is ours, that characterizes the way which we mourn as Christians. Paul says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. He says we're not to weep as those without hope, right? Oh my goodness, it's one of the things that bothers me most about so many Christian funerals, so-called Christian funerals. Uh, You will have certain Christian funerals that do not in any way look differently from the funerals of people in the world where everybody's dour and broken and, and, and sorrowful. Well, of course, death produces a kind of sorrow and grief in us. There's nothing wrong about crying over a lost loved one. But what's missed so often is the note of joy that death is swallowed up in victory, that there is a triumph to be had in death, and that for the the believer, for the Christian, we don't grieve as those without hope. At some point in the funeral, that should come through, that this person is now in the presence of their Savior, that we who are the people of God have the same hope in the resurrection that has to come through in the Christian funeral. We are not those who weep without hope. There are many comforts for the believer, both in the here and now and in the world to come. How is it that the Lord comforts us? Well, He comforts us, first of all, in the present. He comforts us in the present in numerous ways. He comforts us in the present, we who mourn by the promises of the gospel, that though your sins are many, they will be whiter than snow. I see how sorrowful and how grieved and broken you are over your sin, but the good news is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come, and there's forgiveness even for you, and that if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and He'll do it again and again and again and again. He comforts us first by the promises of the gospel. He comforts us by the presence of His Holy Spirit with us who assures us that we are the children of God, that though life is hard now, though we experience trials, though we grieve over our sins and the sins of this world, we're forgiven and we're redeemed and we have the seal of the Spirit. We are the children of God. He comforts us through the corporate church body who comes to comfort us and stir us and keep us in the way. He comforts us through the many promises of His Word in the here and now. He tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He tells us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are promises for our comfort now. Those of us who mourn over our sin and are grieved over our sin, there's comfort for us now. Our sins have been forgiven. They've been defeated. And I need not fear any condemnation. There's a kind of sadness and sorrow that need not be mine because I have the consolations and the comforts of the gospel itself. 
I have the truths of God's Word revealed to me now in the present. There's a comfort we're meant to have now as those who grieve, as those who mourn. And our mourning, friends, should be conditioned by these things. We don't grieve over our sin believing that we'll be condemned in our sin. We grieve over our sin because it grieves the Lord, and then we hope in the comforts that He brings us through the gospel. We have comforts, many comforts in the present, but the Lord also comforts us through the world to come. He comforts us through heaven. He comforts us through the resurrection of the dead. There is a kind of comfort for those who mourn now and weep now that awaits us. We read about it at the start of this year in the message I preach on the resurrection from the dead in the book of Revelation. On that day, for a weary people who have persevered through the trials of this life, who have fought hard the fight of faith, who have waged the good fight of spiritual warfare, there's coming a day where the Lord will wipe away all of our tears. Those the Lord's people who have wept now, who have mourned now, those blessed people, the comfort that is theirs is going to be found in Christ, who, as it were, will take each of us by the face and wipe away all those tears that marked our life in the here and now. There will be no more reason for crying, John says, for death will be no more. There will be no more sin no more need to sorrow. All the things that discourage us and move us to grief now, there will be no reason to grieve in heaven. Think of that. There will be nothing sorrowful in that world. Heaven is a world of love. Heaven is a world of paradise. And I will never cry again. Blessed are those who weep now, for how they shall laugh then. Friends, I want to remind us again and again, I know life is hard. I know the Christian life is hard. I know many are our sorrows and our difficulties, none greater than the remaining sin that still resides in ourselves. But glory is coming. Comfort is coming. Heaven is coming. All those who mourn now, they'll rejoice then. But I close with a word of warning this sermon here at this part of our service, for those who are not Christians. I've told our brothers and sisters here what this text means for them, but I remind you of the account of this sermon in Luke 6. Oh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Woe to those who laugh now, for they shall weep and they shall mourn. Everyone will mourn over their sins. Everyone will mourn over their sins. You want to be like the godly who mourn over their sins now. Today is the day of salvation. For all those who mourn now over their sins and pursue a broken and contrite and repentant spirit before the Lord, they will be saved those who see themselves now as the sinners that they are and weep now and mourn now over their sins, they will be comforted, they will be saved. But for all those who eat, drink, and be merry, for all those who laugh now, who have all their good things in this life, they will mourn too. But it will be when it's too late. How does Jesus describe hell? It is that place in which there is weeping, and gnashing of teeth. My friend, I warn you soberly, in love, as a minister of the gospel, uh, there is a coming judgment. You will be called to account for your sins. I really wish some of you would become even now more serious about the condition you're in, that you'd stop laughing that you'd get serious with God, that you'd turn off the distractions that are keeping you from seeing yourself as you are, a sinner in need of grace, and that 
That awareness would drive you to a holy kind of brokenness, to see your condition before the Lord, a kind of hopeless desperation that I have nothing unless I have the Lord Jesus Christ. And to go to Him as so many have gone to Him before, as so many in this room have done. Say, Jesus, Son of David, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Forgive me, save me, make me well. I come to you in repentance, in weeping and mourning, asking that you would revive me and raise me up and forgive me of all my sins. Such people will know such rejoicing in the world to come. But to those who do not, they will weep and wail. Today is the day of salvation. Make today the day that you face your sins, not then. Despise not yourself such that you continue to put Christ off. Look to the Son now that you might be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see you for who you are. The awesome, mighty, holy, just, good, and perfect God. Help us then to see ourselves for who we are. False and full of sin. And naked, morally, in need of dress and clothing. Helpless to save ourselves in need of grace and forgiveness. And help us, Lord, as the old song says, to come foul and dirty to the fountain, that we might be washed by our Savior, lest we perish. We pray that we would see you for who you are, that we would see ourselves for who we are as guilty, vile, and helpless sinners. Oh, Lord, please help us to see Christ as He is, the Savior, the only mediator between God and man who could give us forgiveness and redemption who could revive the spirit of the contrite and the lowly, to revive the spirit of the broken, who could give redemption and salvation to sinners who see their sin, who are aware of their sin, who are sick of their sin, and want to come to be cleansed, want to be made right by the power of your spirit. Lord, we pray even now as we move to the table together to see a symbolic and visible depiction of your love toward us in Christ, we pray even now you would move us to fresh repentance, that you would convince us afresh of the promises of your gospel, that we would all be saved, that we would all be cleansed, that we would all find ourselves leaving this place destined for that heavenly realm that will be marked by rejoicing and gladness and laughing in perfect paradise forever with you and with the Lamb. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.